All right, well, good morning again. We're going to turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We'll pick back up in chapter 1 as we continue our journey through Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. If you don't have a Bible with you, there will be one hopefully close in the seat pockets in front of you if you'd like to follow along. If not, you are welcome to use your technological devices. I'll assume you're not looking at Facebook and you're paying attention to the message. So either way, we should be good as we navigate through this text this morning. 2 Corinthians uh, is a letter that Paul essentially writes to the church in Corinth as a response to the reaction he had gotten from his first letter. And so as Paul is uh, writing this letter, he actually had previously sent Titus uh, to Corinth to see how they received his first letter. And his first letter was, uh, quite frankly, an open rebuke. We spent several months going through it. And what Paul was trying to address is that this church from the outside that really looked like they had it going on, uh, the reality was inside they were tore up from the floor up. They had all kinds of giftings, they had all kinds of means, and yet what they lacked was love. They didn't actually love people well. And so Paul writes this uh, second letter because he gets word back from Titus and finds out they did not receive his first letter as well as he'd hoped. In fact, uh, many of them could not stand it. They didn't want to listen to anything that Paul had to say. And oftentimes, uh, you guys probably don't react like this, but at least for me, uh, when a word comes against me, my flesh wants to rise up and defend myself. And so immediately they wanted to defend themselves, and so they reacted rather harshly. In fact, they, they questioned the Apostle Paul. They questioned his calling. They questioned his ministry. And so here Paul has this opportunity to write the second letter to the Corinthians, and yet he does not write it from a place of, Anger and frustration, which is how I would tend to react if people didn't listen to me. But instead, Paul chooses to write this letter from a place of love. He cared deeply about the church in Corinth. He'd spent 18 months ministering to him. And so Paul writes this letter. And, and in fact, this is uh, perhaps the most personal letter we get from Paul that he writes to any of the churches that he had planted. And so from a very personal standpoint, Paul is going to write this letter and through the first 11 verses last week, as we began our time through this, what we find is uh, Paul is addressing the tribulation that he experienced. And the reason that he's addressing this is because, in large part, the church in Corinth felt like the tribulations and the trials that Paul had experienced, all the things that he was going through, uh, this was actually a sign of maybe you're not cut out for this, Paul. Maybe this isn't really what you should be doing. They viewed his weakness to be a sign that he wasn't even actually an apostle, which is why at the beginning of the letter he has to say, Paul, an apostle called by God. He wants to make it very clear who it was that called him. And so as he's addressing his tribulations, eventually when we arrive uh, in chapter 12 here in a few months, this is what Paul's going to say with regard to his weaknesses, words that he received from the Lord in chapter 12, verse 9 might be familiar to some of you where Paul writes, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What the church in Corinth saw as weakness, what Paul says is this is actually strength. That God's greatness, His goodness gets to shine through these weak spots. When they wonder how can you continue to operate day in and day out, Paul can point back to Jesus and say, only because Christ is carrying me to the next day. And so what you view as weakness is actually the power of God working through his life. This is what he's communicating. Now, as we uh, arrive in chapter 1, verse 12, as Paul concluded our time 
together last week, what we found is that as uh, he was closer in tribulation, the reality was he was also closer to his Redeemer. That oftentimes when we're in a spot of tribulation and in trials, we find ourselves closer to our Redeemer. Now, uh, notice how I said that. It's not that he's closer to us. We grow closer to him. In fact, he does not move. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus doesn't go anywhere, but I fluctuate all over the map. And so as we're in a spot of tribulation and trial, as opposed to when things are going really well, he's actually drawn then to his Redeemer, and Paul's trying to communicate that to them. So as we arrive in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, I'll begin here for you. We read, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, we actually have our verse of the year. where We started off this year. What is God impressing upon us for this year is that we're to conduct ourselves with simplicity and godly sincerity is how we're to operate as a church. Now what that means is Paul writes this word that uh, his boast and his testimony for his conscience is that he conducted himself in the world in simplicity. This first word simplicity we see, it actually means to be single-minded. That for the Apostle Paul, his goal, his desire for the church in Corinth, the message he gave, he was uh, not uh, only uh, not wide in his thoughts, but he was very narrow in what he wanted to present to them. And in fact, what he wanted to present to them very narrowly, very intentionally, was the gospel of grace. He wanted to communicate the gospel of grace, and he wasn't making any bones about it. Now, the opposite of being uh, single-minded is to, in fact, be uh, double-minded, to be duplicitous, to have uh, all these different compartments and areas in our life that we try to keep straight. And so for me, I know for years and years, I had uh, different compartments I operated in where I would have uh, my work life, and this is how I'm going to operate. I would have my home life, and this is how I'm going to communicate and operate. And then, oh, church, you got to clean it up before we get in here. And so I had a church life to operate. And all those things, uh, quite frankly, after a while, it, it becomes exhausting. Why? Because the lines begin to blend back together. And, and you can't have these two coming into contact. People might find out about me. They might find out, oh, oh my goodness, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually a hypocrite. And in fact, the word a hypocrite is a, a word that's used to describe a Greek actor. That in that day, for Greek plays, uh, what they would do is one actor would play the part of both the hero and the villain. And so if he's playing the hero, he would wear one mask and then flip the mask around whenever he was playing the bad guy. And so literally the phrase two-faced came from this word a hypocrite to be a Greek actor that would go up there and have different faces. So this helps us understand Paul's wanting to share with them, look, we weren't hypocritical. We came at you with one single goal in mind, and that was to share the gospel, that and that alone. And so he encourages them to be simple in the way they communicate. And then finally, he says, we, we came to you with godly sincerity. And so the word uh, sincerity in the Greek is literally without wax, which seems like not very helpful this morning. Without wax, thank you. But in that day, uh, for the Greco-Roman culture, their artisans would work often as sculptors. And you can imagine if you're a sculptor in Corinth back in the day that you're, you're going to spend uh, months working on a sculpture. I mean, a beautiful piece of art and carving it out of 
uh, marble and whittling away at this, and you're going to sell it. This might be your livelihood for months. And just as you're getting ready to put the finishing touches on this beautiful piece of artwork, you hear the bzzz. I mean, this Satan has sent a bee to swarm around your head. And so you're beginning to swat at this thing and you're carving away. And then the next thing you know, as you're swatting this bug, you, you take one too many swipes at the nose of this beautiful sculpture. Bang! Knock the nose clean off of it. Now you're left with a mess. You spent months working on this sculpture and you just destroyed it. And so what would happen is, for the less scrupulous uh, sculptors of the day, is they would take a little bit of wax and they would reform the nose. They would color it to look just like it was all the original marble, and they would put it out in the marketplace and sell it. And you, thinking you got a good deal at the uh, Aldi sculpture shop, think, man, I got a great deal. I'm going to take this bad boy home and put it out by the pool, display it for all my friends. I got this thing for 25% off. It's like Hobby Lobby. Every other week, something's half off. And so I got this thing out there until uh, it's out by the pool, and the next thing you know, the sun begins to shine on it. And then after a day or so, the whole nose Melts off of this beautiful piece of all the artwork you bought, and you're now embarrassed. Why? Because the sculptor did not have any integrity. He was operating with wax. And so what the sculptors would do is they would put over their shops uh, sin, uh, sincere, sincerity. It, they were, were artists that worked without wax. And so Paul's saying here to them, I didn't operate with a hidden agenda. I came at you very directly with what I wanted to do to share with you the gospel of grace, and I conducted myself as a person of integrity. Now as we continue in verse 13, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. And so Paul's saying not only did we handle ourselves very clearly with sincerity, but we also communicated with you in a very straightforward way. In our writing, with the way we addressed you, it was very clear. We intentionally wanted you to understand. Now, I've heard people say this about reading Scripture. Maybe you guys have too, that in order to really understand God's Word, you sometimes have to read between the lines. I mean, sometimes it's, it's there in the vague parts and you gotta, you gotta read between the lines to really get it. And, and I would tell you, what a bunch of malarkey. It's not at all what God intended. He, he didn't intend for us to have to read between the lines, but instead for us to clearly be able to understand. And now you look at this and you go, how could I understand God's word written thousands of years ago? Well, here's what Jesus had to say when it came to the, the Holy Spirit in our life. He says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And so how can we understand the Word of God? We, we ask the Lord for understanding. That's all the harder it is. Lord, help me to understand. And in the moment I'm in, because this Word is living and breathing, He will communicate to my heart what I need to know in that moment that I'm in. And so, seeking Him, you will find very clearly. Now, verse 14, As also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so what Paul had gotten word back from uh, Titus is that the Corinthians were actually ashamed of him. That they were ashamed that the Apostle Paul had planted his church. 
Why? Because they've had all these other speakers come in from other communities, and men, they're great orators. They're good looking, uh, they're tall, dark, and handsome, and, and they're they're excellent communicators. And here's the Apostle Paul, the dude's practically homeless. He's being beaten, he's being thrown in jail, and he's not even that great of a speaker. He's just a little guy in stature. And so when they ask, who planted your church? Oh, well, you know, they want to sheepishly admit that the Apostle Paul is the one who planted the church. And so he wasn't wealthy. He wasn't a great speaker. And the reality was they were ashamed of him. But Paul says here in verse 14, as it relates to you, we actually brag about you. When I talk about the church in Corinth, I'm so proud of you. Not only do I brag about you to other people and other churches, I brag about you to Jesus. And this challenged me because I, I, I think, how do I communicate about others to my Father? Do I often only take the things that I'm frustrated about to Him? Do I only take the things that I wish people did better or treated me differently? Or do I actually brag about people to King Jesus? Do I go, Lord, this person is getting it. Thank you, Jesus, that they're doing such a good job. Father, please continue to bless them because this is what Paul is trying to communicate to them. Now, uh, as a kid growing up in KZ, I was blessed to have both of my grandfathers uh, alive and and was able to spend time with them as the oldest grandkid. And I looked up to both of them, uh, literally looked up to my grandfather, Mo Ashley, because he was a big man, 6'5", so I I looked up to him. And he was also, though, um, one of the smartest, if not the smartest man that I knew. I mean, he was just brilliant. It seemed like he had the answers to everything. And, And... as a young man, he actually made his way to Rolla, Missouri and got an engineering degree in the early 1950s when nobody from a small town like Casey, Illinois, got their engineering degree. And after he'd gotten his engineering degree in the early 50s, he got a job uh, working as a petroleum engineer by the Shell Oil Company, and they transferred him to Texas. And so he made his way down to Texas with my grandmother, and it was there that he actually sat in and took his professional engineer's exam. And this, if you're an engineer, this is the exam that essentially means uh, you've made it. It means you can stamp drawings, you can sign things, that this is an important deal. And so for him, he was able to take this and he became a professional engineer. This was this was a wonderful thing. And, and yet as he moved back to Illinois with a, a young family and he started his own business between Casey and Westfield, uh, he decided to sit in and take his Illinois uh, PE exam. And what he found was it was much different than the Texas exam, and years had passed since he was in college, and so he actually failed his Illinois professional engineer's exam. He, he didn't get his Illinois license. Now, for me, looking up to my grandfather, all I wanted to do was be an engineer. I wanted, I wanted to have an engineering degree, and even more than that, I wanted to be a professional engineer, but I was scared to death about taking this exam in the state of Illinois because I remember the stories, Right? And so as I graduated college and then got the four years of experience I needed, I got the chance in late 2005 to take my exam, or late 2005, you got to think about the timing, late 2005 to take my exam, and in early 2006 got the results. Now by this time, uh, my grandfather had had some health issues, and, and in fact he was out at Sarah Bush in the ICU, they had to do surgery on his carotid arteries in his neck because he had a blockage. And so uh, as I got the results, I made my way out to Sarah Bush. And because of the surgery, when he talked, he had this big, deep, booming voice. But it was, it was raspy because it, it had affected his vocal cords. And I remember going out there, and I handed him uh, the results of my exam and his reaction. 
And he cried out, He passed! He passed! It was this excitement, you see. Why? Because he couldn't wait to brag to everyone about me. And as I say that, I, I, I challenge us, how do we communicate about others? Are we ready to champion them? Are we ready to cry out when someone has a victory to go before the Lord and go, He passed! He passed! And then outside of that, do you realize how your Heavenly Father communicates about you? Because lots of times I think we read Scripture or we listen to messages or we just get something in our head that God is ready to smash us down. That it's this, These are all the ways I've failed today. And yet if you turn in the Old Testament to Zephaniah chapter 3, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will, he will rejoice over you with singing. Did you hear that? That's how God reacts to you. When you bring Him that piece of paper, He is ready to sing over you. Look at my son. Look at what he's done. He is so excited for you. It's not, it's not a relationship of condemnation. And so it changes the way we view our Heavenly Father. Now, this is what Paul is saying. I, I'm bragging about you. I'm bragging about uh, you in the way that I communicate as opposed to the way you've communicated about me. Now, as we continue in verse 15, and in this confidence, I intended to come to you, uh, intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on the way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no. But as God is faithful, your word to you, our word to you was not yes and no. And so what Paul is talking about here is back at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, he communicated his travel plans to the church in Corinth. He said, when I'm passing through Macedonia, I hope to spend the winter with you. And the reality was, because of the circumstances that Paul had experienced, he didn't make it. And so he didn't make it to Corinth, which caused the people that wanted to question Paul in Corinth to go, see, you can't trust anything the Apostle Paul says. He's a big liar. He didn't show up like he said he was going to show up. Therefore, everything Paul said is discredited. And it's amazing to me how Satan will do this. He desires to discredit the messenger so that the message is discredited. And this was what they'd hoped to do about Paul. And yet Paul, as he hears this, he says, you know what? You, you First of all, you forgot the words I communicated. I said, these are my plans, but inserted, if the Lord permits. The Apostle Paul knew that he can't do anything unless the Lord actually permits it. In fact, James, the half-brother to Jesus, communicates in James chapter 4, verse 13 this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this and that. But now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. 
So what James is saying is, you want to brag about, you're going to go here and there, and by God, come hell or high water, this is what I'm going to do. And James says, that's arrogant. That's arrogant of you. Because you don't even know if you're going to walk out of here and make it past today. The reality is, based upon how people fly up and down Woodlawn, I might walk out there and just, whoop, that's it. It's over for me. And so what James is communicating, and Paul wants to make it clear too, is just because I said I was going to do this, the Lord had other circumstances that came up. And so it did not, however, mean that God was not faithful, which is what Paul is writing to them right here. The Lord is still faithful. I didn't make these plans lightly. I desire to be there, and yet God is still faithful in the midst of me not showing up when I thought I was going to. He continues here in verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in Him was yes. For, verse 20, all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now as we read through Scripture, and you're spending any time at all going through the Bible study together plan that we're working on as a church, uh, when you arrive in the Old Testament You get a lot of these, for example. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22. For if you carefully keep all these commandments that I command to you, uh, to you to do, to love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways and to hold fast to Him, uh, verse 23, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself. That sounds awesome. Uh, doesn't it? I mean, the Lord's going to drive out nations from before me. But only if I can love the Lord my God and walk in His ways. You see, the Old Testament, the law is full of if-then statements. If the people did this, then they were going to receive this kind of blessing. And, and it sounds fantastic. And in fact, it would have been except for one problem. Um, they couldn't do it. And here's the problem for me. But neither can I. Not even close. I mean, in fact, in in the law, God gives 613 commandments. We can't even keep the top ten list. And so we've got this problem. If I cannot complete the if, I do not receive the then. And so we've got this impasse that exists. I'm now disqualified from receiving any of the blessings that God has promised because of my sin nature. Unless Jesus becomes my if. In Galatians chapter 3, as Paul is describing this to the church in Galatia, the purpose behind the law, what he says here in Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 is that therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So what's the purpose of the law? He says the law was a tutor, a schoolmaster. And what did it point out? It pointed out that you couldn't keep it. That you have a problem that you need a Savior. There's no way you're going to be able to do this on your own. In fact, verse 25 though, he says, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So once I have faith in Him, I believe that He is my if, I don't have to any longer be concerned about the then. Now, for many of us though, we look at our life and we go, what a failure I am though. I I fail so often. I'm so weak in my ways that, that what is the Lord going to do with me? What Paul wrote to them in his first letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 is this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. What what God says is these, these things that you only see weakness and failure, the Lord says, I'm actually going to work with all that. I'm going to work with all that because you've got a real story you can tell. And the only thing you're going to be able to blame it on is Jesus. You're not going to have any other reason why these things worked out in your life because you are so weak. Things have gone so badly. You can only say, God knows. God did this in my life. I, I didn't. My flesh didn't have any great part in that. And so the reality is, this is the message of the gospel. That we are all complete and utter failures, but because of His blood covering us and His love actually covering us as I accept Him, He then becomes my if and my then, and now I can experience yes and amen. And so, this is the beautiful part of the Gospel message that Paul is trying to communicate to them. Now you might wonder, how does this play out practically? Because this whole thing seems too good to be true. And so for that, um, what I would share with you is, uh, right about now, it's a quarter to eleven, and I don't know about you, but my tummy is doing a little rumbly. I began like Winnie the Pooh. I got a little rumbly going on. I'm getting a little hungry. And so my mind begins to drift off. I mean, the pastor's been talking for like 25 straight minutes. He's been reading. And now I'm beginning to drift off. And as I'm drifting off, cheeseburgers begin to enter my mind. I'm thinking I'm having a Big Mac attack, but not just a Big Mac attack. That's not good enough. I'm thinking about the best fast food cheeseburger I've ever eaten at the In-N-Out's. That's what I'm thinking about. And you know what you get at In-N-Out? You're not getting no chicken sandwich at In-N-Out. They don't serve it. You're not getting no filet of fish. You're getting yourself a, a burger, a cheeseburger, or a double-double. That's all that's on the menu. And so I'm thinking about a double-double right about now while I'm trying to talk to you all. And so as I'm processing this, I'm thinking, how do I get myself a double-double with the, the grease coming through the bag when uh, there are no In-N-Out burgers in the Midwest? They're not even close to us. In fact, the first time I ever ate one was when I went with my wife to Las Vegas after we were just married. There's one right around the corner from McCarran International Airport. And so now I'm thinking, how do I get myself to Vegas to get me a double double? I know what I'm going to do. As soon as I'm done here, I'm going to call the Coles County International Airport Hair Care and Tire Center and I'm going to say, get me on a flight to Vegas so I can get an in and out. Now, as I call them, uh, no doubt Andrew's going to answer the phone and he's going to tell me I have lost my stinking mind because there's no commercial flights coming in and out of there. But as I'm talking to him and communicating my desire for the double-double, he goes, wait a minute, I just got a call on the radio. You're never going to believe this. Uh, There's a 737 that's got to land here to get fuel at the airport and they've said they've got an open seat if you want it. Fantastic. Thank you, Lord. And so I make my way to the Coles County Airport. As I arrive, he says, here's the thing. Because they were just stopping by to refuel, they decided to go ahead and let you on a plane at no charge in first class. Now I'm riding in style, right? And so I begin to make my way. And for me, uh, my wife and I have only flown first class one time because they messed something up and gave us a free upgrade. And when I was there, I didn't even know what to do. I mean, they're handing stuff out. People just show up out of nowhere. Like five stewardesses work in an area of 12 people. And they just show up. They're giving me hot towels. And I start to wipe my hands. I look and there's a guy putting it on his face. I'm like, oh, did that wrong? And so they come out and ask you, do you want more anything? I said, I'll have more everything. 
As I'm sitting there in first class, and you know what I'm not worried about? How to get to Las Vegas. I'm not even thinking about how to get there. I'm not going to go knock on the door and say, hey, are you sure you know where you're going, Mr. Pilot? I'm just sitting back and having a good time. And as I'm there, just enjoying myself, just being there and being present, now they come by with the food carts. Now they're like, hey, uh, would you like steak? We actually have filet mignon. We've got the baked potato and the rolls and a little bit of salad. Meanwhile, all the people back in Coach, they're eating stale bread and bad peanuts. I'm getting a full-on meal. I mean, this is fantastic. And here's the thing. Um, as I continue to travel, making my way for the thing that I thought I wanted, uh, I'm not hungry any longer. But my desire for the double-double went away because I got something way better. I just ate a filet mignon and it didn't even cost me anything. And you see, this is the reality when we trust in Christ. That as I trust in Him as my pilot, I no longer have to worry about where I'm going to fly, how I'm going to get there. He's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I, don't, I no longer have to give Him directions and tell Him, Jesus, take me this way, take me that way. And the beautiful thing is, as I allow Him to just provide for me all the things I thought I wanted in my flesh, the things that I thought I desired that probably weren't that great for me anyway, they eventually just fade away. And so Jesus begins to provide. And I say, Lord, I'm hungry. And he, and he says in John chapter 6, verse 35, yeah, but I'm the bread of life. I say, Lord, I, I want to know if I'm going the right direction. I want you to, to give me clear direction in my life. And in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then as I get there, I wonder, Lord, are you going to open the door so I can have these relationships and these things will just work out for me? And what he says in John 10, 7 is, I am the door. And so through this story that I shared, I wanted to communicate this, that as we rely upon him, as we trust in him, as we give ourselves fully over to Jesus, it's not just that he fulfills my promises. He actually is the fulfillment of my promise, that he becomes everything I need. And so His promises can be yes and amen because all I want is His will done in my life. This is what it looks like to give yourself fully over to Him. Everything you could possibly want becomes everything that He wants and what He wants always happens. And so the encouragement here is to just simply trust in Him. That He will fulfill my needs actually in Him and in His very presence. Now, for some of you, you're like, that sounds great. How do I know, though, that He's really going to take care of me like that? How do I know that He's going to do those things in me? I'm so glad you asked. Verse, uh, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. We're going to go back here to verse uh, 21. Now, He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in is God. Verse 22, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so how do I know that He's going to do all the things He's promised? What Paul communicates here is it's because He's actually given you His Holy Spirit. He's anointed you, and then He has given you this promise of the Holy Spirit, which He calls a guarantee. In other words, a down payment. That what you know about a down payment on something, especially if it's hard money, is that if you put money down on something, you're going to do everything possible to make sure that thing comes to a close. You're going to make sure that deal gets closed out. And what Paul is saying is, he has given you the Holy Spirit as your promise that he's not going to leave you, forsake you, and he's not going to leave you in that spot. He's going to come back and return for what was his. He's going to make sure that he gets 
the deal done. What Paul communicates to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 is this, In Him you also trusted, that after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Do you know who the purchased possession is? It's you. You're the purchased possession. And so as His Holy Spirit now dwells in us, working alongside us, coming upon us to anoint us in power, is that He is also the promise that He's not going to leave us here. He's going to make sure He does exactly what He says. He's preparing us for all of eternity with Him. Now verse 23, He says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Paul had made plans to come to Corinth to address the issues that were taking place. And yet God had changed his plans. And what Paul says here in verse 23 is, you're lamenting the fact that I didn't make it when I said I was going to. It's a good thing I didn't because I was angry. Paul, Paul was working through this. He says, I actually spared you. God spared you by me not coming there because I was upset. Paul was going to wring some necks and set people straight until he had had enough time to actually calm down a little bit. And so Paul cools down, and now he's able to write this letter. I know none of you can possibly relate to that, but there are times where we have to just take a step back, calm down, and process through the way the Lord would have us to handle a situation. This is what happens with Paul. Verse 24, he wraps up our time this morning by saying, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. And so what Paul's communicating here is he's reflecting back on his time with Corinth and he says, look, I didn't have dominion over your faith. I'm not writing this to you and I've never addressed you because I wanted to have any kind of dominion over you because what happens with dominion is it builds uh, religion. And and often I'll, I'll hear people that will talk to me about church and they'll say, you know what, I'm just not into religion. I'm not very religious. And what I would say is, yeah, me neither. Because religion is just a bunch of rules and regulations to try to craft a way that we think we can somehow attain God's grace and His love in our life. God was never after religion in the first place. He was always looking for relationship. He spent time with Adam and Eve in the cool of a garden because He wanted a relationship with them. He was a friend to Moses and communicated face to face because He wanted a relationship with with them. He sent his son because he wanted a very up close and personal relationship with us. He came to dwell among us as the word became flesh. The word dwell means tabernacle. Jesus came, John 1.14, to tabernacle among us, to be in the midst of his people. And so his desire for us is to actually have a relationship with us. What Peter communicates concerning uh, church and and his views on it, he says in First Peter chapter 5, verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords 
over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Peter's saying, I don't want to lord things over you. In fact, I don't want to even compel you. I want you to come to this decision yourself. Which is exactly what Paul is trying to communicate to them. He didn't want to have dominion over their faith. He wanted them to come to this realization, to come to this mindset that I want to be in relationship with King Jesus myself. Which leads me to the last points that I wanted to communicate just on on how and why we do what we do. A, A philosophical style here at Woodland Chapel is that first of all, we want to present the whole counsel of God. This is my desire. And in fact, what Paul tells the church in Ephesus in Acts 20 is, I did not shun to share with you the whole counsel of God. That means from Genesis to Revelation, we want to cover the whole thing. It's probably going to take us a decade and a half at this rate. But the desire is to share the whole counsel of God. But inside of that, Paul's also saying, I'm sharing with you everything the Lord has given me. So if if ever there's a point in time that a person comes up to me after service and says, "Uh, did you think of this or that? Were you considering sharing this or that? I will tell you unequivocally, uh, no. I shared with you everything I had. Everything the Lord gave to me, I spilled it out there for you. And so the Paul is saying this too. Hey, look, everything the Lord gave me, I'm putting it out there. I'm sharing with you what God has put on my heart. And so the desire there is to share the whole counsel of God uh, from Genesis to Revelation and to do uh, with that what God had put on Paul's heart to share everything that he had been given by the Lord. The second piece is to simply teach the Bible simply. That this is one of those things Pastor Chuck used to love to say. We want to we want to simply share the Bible simply with people. We want to talk about this in a way that is actually understandable in our culture, in the day and age that we're in because this book is like any other book in that it has words on a page and yet it is completely unlike any other book in that it is living and breathing and speaks into your life right where you're at. And so we want to simply present the Bible simply. And in everything we do, we're intentional about being simple about it from worship to our teaching through the Word of God. Now, uh, it doesn't mean that fog machines and lights and big sound is bad. For people that like that, that's fantastic. There's places that provide it. Uh, it's just not going to be here. And what I have felt is that whatever you get people with, that's the thing you have to continue. And so if I got you here because we had a fog machine, I've thought about it. In fact, I thought about jumping out of the baptismal with a fog machine with To Hell with the Devil playing by Striper. To hell with the devil! I mean, that'd be awesome. And yet, um, I feel like I'd have to do that week in and week out in order to continue for you guys to come. And so there's intentionality by simply just sharing God's Word in a simple way. That this is what you're going to get next week and the week after and the week after. It's just the the Word of Truth being hopefully rightly divided. Now, finally, all this is really to say our desire is to encourage you to actually stand on your own faith, not my faith. If you're relying on standing on my faith, we're, we're both in deep trouble. Because... I've got the same struggles you got. And so when we are faithless, Paul tells Timothy, uh, God is faithful. And so as we desire to communicate these things, the hope is you will build a faith of your own that is personal, uh, that is deep. And then as you build a faith of your own and trials and tribulations come upon you and in your life, and as I shared with you last week, super encouraging, um, as a Christian, you're either going into a tribulation 
you're in the middle of a tribulation or you're coming out of one. And so there's no other spot to be in. As you're going into a tribulation and in the middle of it or coming out of it, you've now got a personal faith that is yours and you're working together with Jesus because here's this beautiful passage in Matthew 11 that many of you uh, probably have highlighted. If you don't, uh, go ahead and highlight it. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where the Lord says, oh, that's funny, I marked Matthew 28. Matthew 11:28 says this, Come to me, all you, are, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In, in that day, when they would tie oxen together, they used what was called a yoke, Y-O-K-E. They would take it across the back of the oxen, just like the picture you see there. And they would typically pair a stronger oxen together with a weaker oxen with hopes that the one that was weaker would eventually grow up to be as strong as the main oxen. This is the imagery Jesus is painting. He's saying, I'm the one with the strength. Yoke yourself to me. I'll do the heavy lifting. There will be some burdens. We're going to have to work through this thing together. But as you yoke yourself to me, the yoke is going to be easy. I'm not going to lay on you what you can't handle. And the burden is going to be light. And so as we go through this relationship in a personal way, I now know that I can yoke myself, not to the pastor or leaders in the church, but I can yoke myself to King Jesus. I can have one who is strong and able to walk me through this trial or tribulation that I'm in. And so Father God, we thank you. And we praise You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the promises in this book. And thank You, Lord, for yeses and amens. Father, help us as we navigate through this because far too often we want to have an if-then relationship. We want to have some kind of skin in the game to feel like I did it. Lord, I know that all too well in my life. It's just pride but I want to somehow be able to boast that I had some peace in this salvation, yet I fail, and then it hurts just that much more because it's me who failed. Father, help us to yoke ourselves to you who cannot fail, who will not fail, who refuses to fail. Father, we thank you, and we praise you for being patient with us. Thank you for working through even our messes and mistakes and our trials and our tribulations. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for desiring a relationship with us. Help us as we put aside religion and rule, we pick up a wonderful relationship with you. I pray all this in Jesus' name.